This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Thank you, Zach. Hey, good morning, Trinity. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I am Ronnie Garcia. It's a joy to open up God's Word with you this morning. So we have um, currently been in a series in Acts, and, um, you know, it's important that we ask why. Why? You know, we've mentioned that Acts is like the origin story of the church, and um, seeing, uh, we're we're beginning to see through Acts what what marked the early church, right? What were, their, what were their values and what were their practices? You know, when the outside world looks at the church, what are we known for? Like, what are we known for? What values are associated with the church? Now, listen, there are, there are things that the world and society loves that we're not here to assimilate those values or to placate them, but there are ways that we have not embodied this contagious and irresistible uh, beauty and values that would be quite surprising and off the menu of the imagination of the world if they could see it in us. So what we want to do is we want to look at the early church and we want to compare ourselves to their values and practices and we want to get back to God's heart. That's what this is about. And um, I believe that even those who are just exploring the faith, if that's you, if you're just peeking in, you, you, the skeptic can look in on this and be caught by surprise by what is at the center of God's heart. Now, today we're going to be in chapter 10. You'll notice that uh, I have skipped chapter 9, which is the conversion of the apostle Paul from Saul to Paul. We're going to skip that this morning, and that's because Zach preached that text, I don't know, six or seven months ago, and I didn't want to overload you with it. But today we're going to be in chapter 10, and we are going to see uh, two conversions that are quite surprising. Um, And let me tell you why. Uh, There is this ancient uh, rabbinic prayer, and and this prayer reflects what what the, the rabbinic worldview of the time. And the prayer goes like this. Blessed are you, God, king of the universe, for you have not made me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. Hear that? Thanks, God, for not making me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. That was like in the water of the rabbinic world. And yet, as you begin to study and process the narrative of Acts, what you're going to find is Luke, the author, focuses on conversions of Gentiles and women and slaves as if they are prized and privileged people in the very heart of the God of Israel that the rabbis are missing out on. So today in chapter 10, we're going to see uh, the conversion of a Gentile, and his name is Cornelius. And then we're going to see a conversion of a Christian, Peter. (laughs) So listen, I I think that Peter's a Christian, okay? He's saved. But I think what we're going to see is something in him that is so transformative, such a big deal, that the only word big enough to describe what's happening to Peter is conversion. So we're going to see that. His, um, what's going to happen in Peter is going to be so instrumental and so important that it completely changes the history, the course of history um, in, uh, in the church. That's how big this is. So in both cases, Cornelius and Peter, we are going to see this crazy, unlikely, gracious welcome of God 
And so that's going to be our outline today. See this welcome, this unlikely and gracious welcome in the conversion of Cornelius first and then in Peter second. And that's our outline. So with that brief introduction, would you stand with me? And we are going to read quite a large passage that this story actually lasts three chapters, but I am only going to read for you the first 28 verses of Acts chapter 10. Let's give ourselves diligently and reverently to God's word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made him clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day, he rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. And Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I, too, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures and stands forever. May he bless it for all of us. Amen. You may be seated. 
Let's begin with uh, Cornelius. Um, you know, recently uh, there's this song by Demi Lovato that is haunting and has really caught my attention. I don't know if you know Demi Lovato. She's a highly accomplished music artist. Uh, from a very young age, she got into acting and singing. She's one of the kids in the Barney and Friends, you know, the purple dinosaurs. She starred alongside Selena Gomez. She toured with the Jonas Brothers. She was in a few episodes of Grey's Anatomy and Glee. Uh, tons of awards. Guinness Book Record Holder for the most Teen Choice Awards, 14. And she has won the most prized award in music. She's won two Grammys. Uh, she got the good life, as our culture would put it. And the gods and the idols of our culture have been really good to her, it would seem. And listen, um, Demi Lovato, in this sense, is devout, right? She has given her gods everything. For the gods of fame and fortune, she has worked hard, and they have rewarded her. And where has this gotten her? Her gods have corroded her humanity. She, Demi Lovato, that precious image bearer, has lived a tortured life of addiction and depression. So this year... In January, at the Grammys, she sings this song, Anyone. And she's singing this song in front of thousands of screaming fans, right? And, and she can't even get through the song. She is weeping. And this is like a secular worship song. This song, and I'm about to play it for you, is a song of holy discontentment because her gods did not do their part. Watch this video with me.
I just wanted to play a clip. I mean, it's haunting. Crying out to her gods. Why why do we even pray? Is anyone listening? I've done everything. Why do I I begin this way? Is it just because I'm an edgy Presbyterian using videos of my sermon? I wonder. I wonder if this is Cornelius. I wonder if this is Cornelius. Let me tell you about him. And verse 1 tells us that Cornelius is a centurion living in Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a a port city that was created by Herod the Great. It brought in a bunch of wealth into the Roman Empire. All the grain from Egypt is coming in there. Um, So Rome put this cohort, which is 600 soldiers there, with extra armament and assigned six centurions. So this is a really big and important job. And Cornelius is one of those six centurions. He is powerful. He is powerful. Luke tells us that he is a devout God-fearer. In other words, he looked, as a Gentile, he looked at the Roman pantheon, and he knew that there just was not enough substance. And, And there's this holy discontentment in his soul. I mean, can anything make him fully alive? Can anything make him fully human? Because the Roman gods were corroding his humanity, and he knew that, and it made him less human, not more human. Now, Demi Lovato felt the absence of her gods, and and she felt their corrosive effect on her humanity, but Demi stops there in her desperation, and Cornelius opens up his heart. He doesn't close it. He faintly and strangely senses something's different with the God of Israel. And before he ever even knows him, Cornelius is praying and giving and longing. And he prays to God and he tries to live for God before he ever even meets God. And God honors that holy discontentment. And and so God sends him a vision. Verse 3, the angel says, Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is terrified. But he says, the, the angel says, your prayers and your alms have ascended before God. And then he says, hey, I need you to do something for me. And the angel tells him to send some men to Joppa, which is about 31 miles south of Caesarea, to bring Peter and, and bring him to Caesarea. Now, Cornelius has no idea who Peter is, never even heard the name before, but that's what he's going to do. So the entourage goes and gets him. Now, when Peter arrives, the centurion, you know, he had this vision, and if he's going to send him to go get someone, he he doesn't know, maybe he's bringing in like an angel. So Cornelius falls on his face, but Peter's like, whoa, don't do that. Stand up, right? And then Cornelius had assembled this crowd all of his relatives. There's this crowd waiting for Peter. And what Peter does at that moment, and this is right the passage right after ours, is Peter begins to preach about Jesus and the burning in Cornelius's heart all made sense. He felt his full humanity, a wholeness at the name of Jesus. And the text tells us that he was baptized. It was incredible. It was incredible. 
And here's why this conversion is so significant. First, Cornelius is a Gentile. I know that doesn't feel like much to us now, but the last place that you expect to find faith is with a Gentile. And and this conversion is put into this text as a model of faith, right? A Gentile as a model of faith. I mean, this is absolutely controversial, you guys. Why? Because Jews were absolutely repulsed by Gentiles. Their revulsion towards Gentiles is baked into all of their traditions. Just to kind of help you feel what this might have been like, this would be like making an African-American Christian as a model of faith in an all-white, segregated church in the South during Jim Crow, right? I mean, totally controversial and edgy. This is crazy what we're seeing here. And second, not only is he a Gentile, but he shows faith before he has understanding. In other words, his confidence was in God, not his reasoning. Can you see how different that is from how we do business here today? See, what we do is we put God on trial we apply our reasoning, and we see if he holds up to our standards. That's how we do it. Cornelius doesn't do that, does he? He begins to obey before he has all of the pieces put together. He doesn't subject God to his reasoning. He submits to God with his obedience. In other words, Cornelius loves in order to believe. It's not that he believes in order to love. You see that? Love comes first, and it ascended into heaven. Now, what is this conversion? What does Cornelius' conversion mean for all of us today? First, we've got to ask, where do you think is the last place on earth that you, you would find faith? I mean, who is the outsider that you're just sure would never believe. Who in your mind is beyond the pale of grace? We must not be shocked when God shows grace to the outsider. Because if you're shocked, you will stop expecting God to reach your family and your neighbors. If you're shocked... If you're shocked, it's because your faith is more about the maintenance of your own beliefs than a faith with a sense of mission, where God's scandalous grace is not just about knowing things, but it's doing something. If you're shocked, you will never see yourself as an unlikely candidate for grace. You'll see yourself as a perfectly logical candidate for God's grace, right? That you're just so good while those other people, they're the messed up ones. Second thing that we see with this conversion is if, if you're searching for God or if you want to learn more about God, you must love him first. You have to open up your heart to God. Don't put him on trial. Don't subject God to the dungeon of your own small reasoning. Love him first, and faith and understanding will come, you see. 
when you're doing Bible study, love first. When you're trying to understand God's sort of mystery and and all these trials that you're experiencing, love first. When you're searching for faith, love first. See, love unlocks faith and trust. See, the unlikely conversion of Cornelius a Gentile outside the bounds of the community of grace, loved first. And he is not an outlier. He's a model of faith. And that's the church was composed of those guys, those men and women. So that's, that's, uh, that's Cornelius. So we looked at the, God's crazy, unlikely, gracious welcome in the conversion of Cornelius. Now, let's consider now the welcome in the conversion of Peter. Now, I said it before, Peter's probably a Christian. He's saved, to use evangelical jargon. But what happens to him is, like, so crazy that we need a big word to describe this transformation. And conversion's the best word I know. Um, when, I was, um, when I was in college, I had the opportunity to be a part of a skydiving program. And what's so unique about this skydiving program is um, the very first jump that you ever make, you're all by yourself pulling your own cord. So, you know, your usual skydiving program is like you get strapped to some uh, professional in tandem and they jump out and you're just kind of there for the ride. Not with the program that I did. And so because the very first time you're ever going to jump out of a plane, you're doing it on your own, we had to go through weeks and weeks and weeks of training. And we had to study so much. And so much information was going through our brain. We had to figure out and learn and memorize every possible contingency of what could go wrong when you're in the air. And all of it's really obscure stuff. And you're hoping that you'll never have to use any of this information. Weeks and weeks of it. And so there's all this trivia. I remember there's this one thing, like if, you're, if you jump out of a plane and you're falling and, you're, and your parachute's not inflating, uh, you look up, it, it, your cords could be wrapped too tight. And so you have to pull on the cords and then you start bicycle kicking. And I thought, that's a really weird thing to do. Like, like bicycle kicking in the middle of the air, like as you're falling to your death. All right. So my first jump, there I am at five or 6,000 feet or something. The world looks like a map. The jump master looks at me and says, stand in the door. And I'm like, now I'm going to jump out of this thing. This is crazy. So man, I jump and I'm just adrenaline. I'm going through all of my procedures and I go and I pull my cord and I keep falling like a rock. Nothing is happening. And I look up and sure enough, my cords are wrapped way too tight and I keep falling. And so I've got all this information and all of a sudden, I remembered this random piece of information. I pull the cords, bicycle kick, and the, and the parachute inflates and it clicked. All of a sudden, that information that was in the back of my mind swimming around there all came to the front and it all made sense now. That click. You know why I share that story? Because we are going to see a click in the Apostle Peter that's even more dramatic than jumping out of a plane. See, what happens next, the next part of our passage, the scene shifts from Cornelius to Peter, who's on a roof in Joppa. 
Now, the last time you heard that city, Joppa, was with Jonah, the prophet in the Old Testament. And he went there because God told him to go love on some Gentiles, and he didn't want to do it. So Peter finds himself in Joppa, right? So Cornelius had a vision, but now it's Peter's turn to have his own strange vision. Now, you have to remember that Peter understood himself as as a Jew whose Messiah came, right? He's not like a 20th century evangelical. This is a Jew whose king, whose Messiah had come. He knew, he grew up in the faith. He knows the Abrahamic covenant. He knows that God would bless Israel in order to bless all of the nations of the world. Peter even walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus' compassion towards Gentiles and sinners. He heard with his own ears Jesus say, What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And that, by the way, is like this hardcore knock on Jewish food customs. It's crazy. So Peter's on the roof, and he has a vision of this sheet descending from the heavens, and it's like animal planet going on here, all right? Now, some of the the animals are fine, but others are considered common and unclean for a Jew. And then there's this voice, verse 13. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is extremely alarming to Peter. Every cultural and religious instinct, he could hear his mother saying it over and over from him when he was a kid. Everything in him says, no stinking way. Now, Peter does this thing, and it's kind of a nasty habit of Peter's. He tends to put the words no and Lord in the same sentence. Verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Pedro nunca había probado lechón. He has never eaten a pulled pork sandwich in his life. You know what I mean? And the Lord says, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. And he refuses the Lord three times. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Like the last time he denied Jesus, three times? And so Peter's like so confused by the vision because this is actually repealing Leviticus 11, which is like the Jewish dietary laws. Now, some people will try to tell you that those Jewish dietary laws were like for health reasons for the, for the nation of Israel. That's not true. That's true. There's no evidence of that. What we know for sure is that these food laws absolutely gave Israel identity. It demarcated them. You know Why? Because food divides. Israel is supposed to be separate from all the other nations. The way that Israel eats, it is an identity marker. Food divides. And guess what? It still does today. You guys know this. Food choices divide the rich and the poor. Food choices divide one culture from another. I was told that in Korea, there's a certain species of dog that is bred very specifically for consumption. It's normal in the culture. But as like a North American guy, like, what? No way. I just couldn't, couldn't do that. I don't eat dog. It's just, it's, I, it's, it divides, right? It breaks table fellowship. 
So what God used to help identify and demarcate Israel, what we're seeing is it actually turned into a toxic tradition. The traditions, now listen, they had a par- purpose. They, they were first instituted to kind of protect Israel, but like many traditions, turned sour, and they became a litmus test for who is an insider in God's heart, who are truly the good guys and the obedient guys. And so tradition became a way to exclude people and to even make fun of Gentiles. And it created this huge cultural blind spot to bring, uh, for bringing the gospel to people like Cornelius, right? Now listen, I am sure that Peter would want Cornelius to be a Christian. I'm sure that's the case. But for Cornelius to become a Christian... He needed to be like Peter first. Be like me before you can follow Christ. That was Peter. But then God sent this crazy vision. And while he is so confused, trying to figure out what this vision means, someone knocks at the door, right? Verse 19 and 20, the Spirit says, yeah, you're not the only one, Peter, getting visions around here. I sent some guys to you from Caesarea, accompany them back. Now, the journey from Caesarea to Joppa is about 31 miles. It's a day's journey. And so this entourage needs some refreshment and some rest. So verse 23, we see this huge step in Peter. It says, so Peter invited them to be his guests. The ice is starting to break. You know why? Because just shaking hands or giving them a hug would have made Peter ceremonially unclean. So the next day, Peter went with the guys, and and these two guys, each who had visions, are now going to meet each other. So Peter walks up to Cornelius, and Cornelius just assumes, right, that that God sent him to go retrieve some angelic creature or something. I mean, who knows what the vision that was all about. So he sees Peter, and he falls on his face, and he starts to worship him. But Peter says, verse 26, stand up. I too am a man. Now listen, Peter knows that humans should not be treated like gods. He knows that. But what he's also learning is that other humans should not be treated like dogs either. And Peter sees Cornelius' humanity even if he is a Gentile, and he lifts him up, and he lifts him up, and there is the click. All that information that is in the recesses of his memory, all that information that he just, he didn't know what to do with, all of it is now starting to make sense. The words of Jesus, and he looks up, and the parachute inflates, and he is deeply, deeply converted on a constitutional level. Verse 28 He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. That is absolutely earth shattering. And Peter's life and the life of the church will never be the same again. It fundamentally changed what the church would be like. 
And here's what I want you to understand, is that Peter's deep constitutional conversion and transformation is for us too. That's why it was put in the Bible. See, all of us are swimming in these deeply enculturated ideas about the practice of our faith. These ideas about who are the good people and who are the bad people. And some of true Christianity. We have all these ideas that divide the world in ways that God does not divide the world. Politics, economics, education, race, visions of justice. These things have turned into this hard outer shell, shielding people from the core of the gospel. We cannot say that you must look like me before you follow Jesus, right? You have to dress like me. You have to vote like me. You have to have the same musical tastes as me. You have to educate your kids. You have to make the same educational choices for your kids like me if you want to be a Christian. Those ideas create deep blind spots, and they actually create obstacles to the faith itself. In many cases, they become a substitute for Christianity. If you do those things, then you're a Christian instead of believing in Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And so our passion lamentably begins to convert people to our, our political party. What, what really gets us excited is if I can convert you to my political party. Or what really gets me excited is if I can convert you to my vegan ideas. Or what gets me really excited is if you do all natural birth like me. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? It's absurd. We do that passionately in a passion we don't have for the gospel itself. We want to convert people to Christ. Whatever thing that gives you an identity, whatever makes you a we versus them, whatever makes you clean and the other unclean, that has to go. The Lord met Peter and it undid and unraveled all the things that gave Peter certainty that he was a good person. And Jesus says, only me, only me. And now what we see is Peter takes the outsider and he brings them to the center. Listen, Trinity longs to create that crazy, unlikely, gracious welcome of God. We want to take away all of the obstacles until we're left with the grace of Christ alone. And when we do that, if we do that, we will represent the graciousness and the warmth of Christ to the world. Let us be more certain of God's grace and more suspicious of these cultural indicators that make us feel like we are the good guys in our society. Peter knew Jesus. He did. But what happened here converted him on a deep, deep constitutional level, you see. Okay, let me just quickly conclude. We, um, listen, we want to make this church reflect and imitate the crazy unlikely, gracious welcome of God. And the conversion stories of Cornelius and Peter represent God's own heart. They do. Some commentators have even said that this passage that we read is the single most important passage in the whole New Testament. 
Maybe that's an overstatement, but here's why they would say that. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he's going to start talking about this thing called the mystery of the gospel. That seems like a pretty big deal. Like, what is the mystery of the gospel? He says that it is when Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs and members of the same body. Why, Gentile and Jews being fellow heirs, why is that a description of the essence of our faith? Why? Here's why. Jews and Gentiles, they are natural enemies. There is nothing about them that would bring them together. And yet, natural enemies, by God's grace, are now becoming brothers and sisters And if you can understand that reconciliation and that relationship between brothers, between men and women on a horizontal level, then you're starting to get a glimpse of God's heart towards you on a vertical level. Because you are a natural enemy of God. There is nothing that you have done to make yourself more acceptable to God. Our disobedience, our cosmically ungrateful ways that we live our lives as if we are our own gods, having ourselves alone to thank, having only ourselves to glorify and to exalt, that is more than damnable. Natural enemies with God is the understatement of the century. But there is something in God, this crazy, unlikely, gracious welcome. And he says, I will place my affection on you, my favor upon you, and we're going to be family. Oh, it will be costly. It's going to cost me all the blood of my own son. But you are worth it. You're totally worth it. And God brings you from the outside into the center of his heart. God makes room for you. Trinity, would we make room for others so that they can taste and see the same cosmic welcome? Could we do that too? I pray, I pray Acts 10 would just stamp us deep. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these moments when we get to think deeply about how you are pushing us out of our comfort zone, out of our own culture. Lord, strip us of everything until we're left with the gospel alone. Strip us of all those other places that we find identity until we are left with you. Oh, Lord. I pray that would just start with me. Have mercy on us, Lord. You have welcomed us. Teach us to welcome others, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.